Welcome to Passing Years CAM Podcast, Conversations on Aerodigestive Management. This episode of CAM features your host, Dr. Kristen King, and guests, speech-language pathologists Laura Brooks and Brooke Richardson, having a conversation on comparison of pediatric and adult acute care. Hi, everyone. I want to welcome you again to the Conversations on Area Digestive Management, the CAM podcast. And I'm here today talking with Laura Brooks and Brooke Richardson, two speech-language pathologists. I've brought these two speech pathologists on to speak with me today because they're kind of two ends of the spectrum in talking about working with patients with tracheostomy. And what I mean by that is Laura Brooks is a speech-language pathologist from Children's Hospital of Atlanta, and she has a number of years of experience working with patients with tracheostomy in the pediatric realm. She's done research, she's published um, studies where she's been investigating how to work with patients with tracheostomies and looked at predictors for success and the use of speaking valves and a number of other things. And then she also speaks at the state and national level. And then we also have with us Brooke Richardson, another speech language pathologist, who's been practicing for a similar number of years, working with adults with patients with tracheostomies. And Brooke has done a number of things related to education, publications. She also presents at the state and national level. And they both have a passion for sharing knowledge and educating speech language pathologists to make sure that patients receive the best care. And so I wanted to bring them both on so that today we could talk about pediatric and adult tracheostomy worlds and kind of talk about what the differences are and the preparation speech language pathologists need to work in those fields. And both of them, their primary experience is in the acute care setting. And that's kind of where our focus is going to be. But we may talk about other settings also. But first, I just want to get everybody introduced. So welcome, Lauren Brooke. Thank you for getting on with me today to chat. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. And Laura, would you like to share a little bit more about yourself? Is there anything you want to add on that I, I didn't say for the listeners? So yeah, like you said, I work at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and um, we have our hospital is acute care units and intensive care units. We have a pediatric ICU, cardiac, neonatal, and trach vent ICU, and um, patients who are ventilator dependent in all of those units. And our big focus um, with our global trach team, pulmonology, ENT, respiratory, speech, um, the different hospitalists is to um, try to get uh, speaking valves in line on these medically complex infants and children as soon as possible. And for us, that that means right after the first trade change. Okay, thank you. And Brooke, what about you? What would you like to share about yourself? Yeah, I have been working with adults with medical complexities since 2009. And uh, I fell in love with trachs a lot earlier and a lot more than I ever thought that I would in grad school. I remember seeing the pictures and being like, oh my gosh, what, secretions who? Yeah, I was fortunate as a clinical fellow to to get that experience um, working with the trach and vent population. And I've worked at between full time and PRN four different hospitals in the United States on both coasts. Um, so I've been 
exposed to different practice patterns that are regional, which is really interesting, and also very specific to the, the facility itself. Um, so I've worked from community hospitals all the way up to um, internationally known, very complex academic medical centers and uh, really love working with the trach population and um, problem solving patient cases, no matter what the facility offers the patients. Well, I'm really glad to have both of you on because, as I said, you kind of cover the two ends of the spectrum when we talk about working pediatric or adult patient populations. Laura, I know you actually get valves on babies in the NICU all the way, you know, through depending on their medical complexity. And and then, Brooke, you're kind of on the other end of the spectrum as far as age mm -hmm. ranges that you may have seen. So in starting out, Laura, I, you and in your intro actually said something, which is what I kind of where I'd like to start, because you mentioned that you wait until after the first trait tube change before using a speaking valve. Do you mind speaking to that a little bit? So I think that is a little different than what we see in the adult world. And I'll have Brooke kind of chime in on the adult aspect. But could you share a little bit about that waiting until after the first trait tube change? Yes, um, that is our practice. Um, usually trait tube, the first trait change happens about five days after the tracheotomy. And we do that mainly during that time, the um, team and the physicians just kind of, um, because it's a, um, immature stoma and it's a fresh trach and, um, we just, they want everything to heal properly and they don't want, um, you know, things moving around too much. And so, um, that's, that's just been our, our practices to, to wait, um, those five days until um, after the first trait change. And for, I always tell this to parents that, after that first trait change, um, it's just go time with the speaking valve and to think about feeding and um, and then more um, early mobility for the PT and OT team. So that's our perception. How is that different in adults? Yeah, I would say generally there's not a specific wait period. Um, of course, you know, following passing your guidelines, we wait the, the full 48 hours at most hospitals that I've worked at, but I know um, some people some some are not waiting the full 48 hours and i think there's some research about 24 hours i can't remember if it's been published at this point it has yeah there's a study published out of johns hopkins that looked at percutaneous tracheostomy so not surgical but looked at percutaneous tracheostomy and how soon they could place a valve and they found that 24 hours they were actually aiming for 12 hours but they found uh, ironically that the speech language pathologist couldn't get to the room that fast mm -hmm. from the time they got mm -hmm. the orders out that by the time the orders got written and everything got sent out, you know, and people got on schedules and got in and all it averaged about 24 hours that they were placing the valve. Yeah. When you said 12 hours, I thought there's no way, <laughs> like <laughs> there's just no way physically. And, and I have certainly seen my fair share of trachs being put in at like 5.26 p.m. So there's no way that speech would be in the building at 5.26 a.m. Right. the next day. <laughs> um, but yeah, we don't wait for, for trach changes before placing valves. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned that study. I will um, clarify just because you're right, Brooke, in the information for use booklet with the valves, it says 48 to 72 hours post tracheostomy um, for placing the valve. 
that it also says though, or upon physician order. So mm -hmm. it's not a locked in, like it has to be 48 to 72 hours. You also have that leeway, you know, if you have a physician order that might be a little different. And the main reason for that time frame, if people keep in mind, the information for use booklet was written back when the vows first came out in the eighties, we didn't have percutaneous tracheostomies occurring like <laughs> we do now. And it was all surgical and it was to allow that surgical site to heal slightly. So you didn't end up with subcutaneous emphysema. You didn't get air between the skin and like the chest cavity um, mm -hmm. that you'd have some healing of that stoma before placing a valve. And that was, that's the main reason and swelling, you know, bleeding, making sure there's no active bleeding, uh, not excessive swelling, but you'll see some variety in that as far as placement time. And I wonder if another thing that's different between peds and adults is sort of that early intervention, Laura. So you like for adults, we might start to address swallowing before they can have a speaking valve place, depending on facility policies as far as that that 48 hour waiting period. Um, but also we get in there and we work on communication like AAC kinds of things, but I imagine that's not <laughs> doing some sort of AAC is not something that you're going to be doing with uh, a newborn. So I'm curious to know while you're waiting for that trach change to place the speaking valve, are there other things that you're doing besides, of course, maybe educating the, the family or the caregivers? Yeah, that's a good question. So for the um, infants, once they get their ET tube out, then we can um, start offering the pacifier and doing pacifier dipped in formula or breast milk and kind of, you know, non-nutritive stimulation. So um, that's something we do with our infants. And then we do do um, intubated communication. So the AAC stuff in our pediatric ICU with our patients that are um, intubated and then um, who um, have a trach before they can um, speak. So um, we, we definitely will do that with the older kids. And Brooke, you kind of hinted at it, but what are some of the things you do in early intervention with the adults? Uh, in general or in general, yeah, well, in general, and then maybe with the swallowing, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yep. So we started an early mobility program, but actually involved speech in it. It was, uh, I think, a pretty unique program because early mobility tends to be PT and OT. And um, so we involved speech to get in there earlier for some uh, cognitive screening, because sometimes speech is, in my humble opinion, a lot more attuned to very, very subtle cognitive things that nursing or physicians or other providers may not notice. We may go, ooh, that was kind of an interesting response to a yes, no question. So getting involved there and working a little bit on the cognitive piece, but also the communication piece. We do that with intubated patients as well. So not just necessarily um, trach or trach to vent. And then from a swallowing perspective, <laughs> at least in the United States, length of stay uh, is getting shorter. The goal for our patients is for length of stay to get shorter and shorter. Insurance dictates that a lot of the time, and we could talk about that all day. So I, I'm going to close mm -hmm. that can of worms back up. But um, we we try to get in there, and um, just because they have a trach doesn't mean that they had a peg tube placed, which I feel is such a different practice than when I, 
I started and then even 10 years ago. So they might have a nasal feeding tube, for example, and uh, we get started with at least a clinical swallowing evaluation. I'm a huge proponent of ice chips in a clean mouth, um, not just from a disuse atrophy prevention perspective, but also a quality of life perspective and um, allowing nurses to give patients a little bit of something rather than those, in my opinion, disgusting mouth swabs that are always just swimming in a sea of gross at the bedside. <laughs> you know, being able to let the nurse and the patient have a positive relationship in that way too can be really, really helpful. Um, and then, you know, whenever, depending on their medical status, um, whenever they're ready for the speaking and or something like a fees or a modified barium swallow study, then we proceed from there. I've not thought about it before, but ironically, from what you just described and what Laura was sharing, you both are talking about starting from a swallowing standpoint, kind of with the non-nutritive oral stimulation. Mm -hmm. You know, so Laura, you talked about, you know, dipping a pacifier in breast milk or formula mm -hmm. if that's what they're having, you know, and having that non-nutritive suck. And then Brooke, you're talking about ice chips. I've never really thought of the two of them as being online with kind of the same idea of that non-nutritive approach uh, to starting and initiating or restarting, I guess, in an adult, you know, that oral stimulation and, and use. So that's kind of neat. What, uh, you mentioned the ice chips. Do you do that, Laura, at all with, do you do ice chips at all with pediatrics? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, with the older kids for sure. Um, so we, I had a patient just yesterday who, um, you know, we find, I'm sure it's probably similar with adults that the, you start with water and I try to explain to the families, the water's the heart or, you know, liquids are the hardest to swallow, but starting with water is the safest way to go. It sounds a little contradictory, but, um, but we start with a little spoonful of water and then, um, and then ice chips, which I find, um, patients tend to swallow the ice chips much better than the mm. water. So yeah, we do that with older peds for sure. And like Brooke, similar to what Brooke said, and I'm part of the early mobility team too, in our pediatric ICU and which is so awesome to have the PTs and OTs, you know, include the speech therapists and the cognitive mm -hmm. stuff and the communication, everything. It's so great. Um, but uh, we try to try to get the, you know, put ourselves in, in these patients' shoes and they're so thirsty and it's been the older ones, you know, gosh, how long um, since they've had something to drink. So we try to try to get them whatever we can as soon as possible. Right. And there's so much emotional or psychological comfort to taking things by mouth too. Um, you know, so many kids and adults, I think, uh, find comfort in eating something or having that little special drink. Or, I mean, think of even just hearing the sound, I don't even drink Coke, but hearing the sound of a Coke can or bottle opening, it just, it mm -hmm. sounds refreshing and it sounds like um like a positive memory that i had from going to the pool when i was a kid or something like that so um i think we're helping them in more ways than just sort of creature comforts or that that physical sensation i think that this early um intervention that we can do including communication is really really helpful emotionally 
trying to normalize this this experience during the ICU. That's obviously mm-hmm. not, a, not a normal place. Um, so, and then also for the caregivers, you know, parents, um, we mothers get so much pleasure um, and caregivers get so much pleasure for feeding our babies and feeding our kids. And um, so, so the caregivers get a lot of, a lot of, a lot from that. On the Pete's side, Laura, one of the things I often talk about is you're also looking at that parent-child bonding, that mm-hmm. caregiver bonding when you're talking about a newborn, you know, and being able to feed them and not, you know, if you're not addressing feeding and they're not able to hear the cry, you know, and all of those pieces aren't there, it can affect that bonding development. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. I, um, I'm, I've said this before. So, um, if you've heard this, sorry that I'm repeating myself, but it's, it's super important. I've had, um, so many people will say, oh, why does an infant need a passing your valve or sure. I think that's a great idea, but why in the ICU when they're on a peep of 10 or whatever? And my answer is different depending on the person that's asking the, the parent cares about the cooing and the the speech development and the bonding and, um, and I'll, I'll also throw in obviously the, the safety factor, you know, you're walking by a room and a patient with an inflated cuff without a passing your valve in, um, you can't hear the baby crying. And so, um, that's a, that there's a safety factor too. Um, and then for the doctors, you know, I, I had a, a physician in the PICU uh, when I asked if we could do the passing your valve, they were like, yeah, yeah, I think that's, I think that's good, but can I just ask why now? Um, and so I said, with um, for the benefits of secretion management, so the patient can sense their secretions in their upper airway. They can cough in response to that. They can swallow in response to that. And so starting to to normalize, um, you know, secretion management, which will obviously in turn, you know, benefit their respiratory status. So just kind of tailoring your answer to what's meaningful for the, for the person, but definitely for the parents that, that first moment when you place the valve and the patient's crying and we're in just, then the parents start crying. It's just so magical the, to hear your, for these parents to hear their baby's voice for the first time. Mm-hmm. Well, Laura, you mentioned one of the barriers with peds is sometimes that, well, why now they're, you know, because of their age and they're young, what broke mm-hmm. are some of the barriers you've run into? Well, over the years, there have been some interesting barriers. One is still, I think, um, fortunately, I haven't run into this recently, but still some physicians or even respiratory therapists are reluctant to deflate the cuff uh, because of this fear of aspiration. It's amazing how aspiration is like the biggest fear. And I'm not saying that it's, you know, benign all the time. It, it can be very, very serious for certain people. But um, yeah, I think that's one of the, the biggest ones is deflating the cuff. And then, you know, if we're talking about doing something in line, that's a whole other process and procedure and requires respiratory therapy to be in the room, um, which they're happy to do. Typically, it's just that timing is really, really challenging because everybody in healthcare now, it seems, is understaffed and overworked. And, um, you know, it's it's hard to fit in something like an inline speaking valve with, I don't know how many dozens of vent checks and um, nebulizer treatments and other treatments. And then you've got your codes and your emergencies. 
So um, trying to plan and coordinate something like that can be really, really challenging. And then sometimes, not every time, but sometimes we get that person, their voice, and um, we don't want to take it away, right? We don't want to disconnect the speaking valve and take away their voice that they're so happy to hear that they were able to call their loved ones with. So that's that's another piece of it is, um, you know, not just coordinating everybody, but having to be fair about keeping their voice on as long as we can, but also taking care of our other patients. Very similarly um, for us with the, um, most of the patients that we do the speaking valve with are um, ventilator dependent in our hospital um, and getting the RT um, who's intubating patients or extubating patients, you know, like you similarly can be very challenging. Um, we do have dedicated RT educators, which has made our life so much easier um, because they are happy to go into any unit with me and do the, the PMV trial. And what I try to do if, if they're not available and I, and I have to use the bedside RT is I'll say, you know, I really honestly just need you for like two minutes um, to, I have all the supplies, I get everything all ready and they just need to come in and basically be there while I'm putting it in line, um, to troubleshoot, you know, if anything happens. And so it's just a a little safety thing. So I try to set, I try to set it up so that I'm not using that much of their time. And then if they're comfortable, I say, you know, I'll supervise the patient for however long the session is going to be. Um, and I'll call you if I need you. And, you know, that doesn't happen because we, um, before the RT leaves, we've already figured out the, the transtracheal pressure measurement. And um, so we kind of make sure that everything, our eyes are dotted and our T's are crossed and then they'll, you know, they don't have to stay at the bedside, which helps. So Laura, you mentioned transtracheal pressure measurement, and I wanted to take this actually, the next step was to talk about patient readiness for using a valve Mm -hmm. and compare kind of the peds to the adult population. And then also how we assess for airway patency in those two patient populations, because there's a little bit of difference, I think, at times that we should consider. So do you mind starting, Laura, about how you decide one of your kiddos is ready and then how you assess the airway patency? Yes. So um, the there's no age um, or weight, you know, so what we what we do when the patient has a trach and is um, on a ventilator, the first thing I do is I look at the, um, well, I look at why they got the trach. So did they get the trach because of um, lung disease, BPD for preemies and, um, or was it an airway issue? Did they have, um, you know, some kind of significant upper airway obstruction? So why did they get the trach? And then that kind of gives me a sense of, um, of how successful they may or may not be. You know, obviously if they got the trach for airway obstruction, um, the valve might be challenging. Um, and if it's for lung that we can kind of assume in our head, their airway is probably patent. Um, but for the itty bitty ones, um, with small tracheas and, um, this foreign object in, in their trachea taking up space, sometimes they're, you know, that, that can be the, the level of obstruction, just not having the leak, the space between the, the trach tube and the trachea. So the first thing I do, I, I think about why they got the trach. And then, um, I look at the ventilator settings and our parameters are peep of 10 or less. Um, FAO2 of less than 50% and PIP less than 40 centimeters of water. And um, so I look at the vent settings and then I look for any kind of contraindication 
Um, and there aren't that many for us in peds, you know, like if, you know, the patient had a reconstruction and has um, stints in place or something that's the obvious, obviously a contraindication if they have known grade four subglottic stenosis would be an obvious contraindication. Um, but what I, so I kind of look at that in the chart and then um, reach out to the ENT, the pulmonologist, and then if I'm in the PICU, the, the PICU attending or whatever, and then get all of their blessings um, and say, hey, yeah, I'd like to do a speaking valve, uh, a passing me trial with this kiddo, I'll, I'll, RT will be with me. Um, and then, and even with upper airway obstruction, because we're doing manometry, I always will put that in. Like, I know they have X, Y, Z upper airway obstruction, but, um, you know, obviously we're going to be, um, measuring transtracheal pressure. So we'll know, um, if they are able to adequately exhale out of their upper airway, we'll know that very soon. So, and then everyone, you know, has, has peace of mind about that, knowing that we, um, cause everybody loves numbers in healthcare. So we get that, um, we get the numbers that, that give us peace of mind that the patient can, can breathe with the valve in line. And I know we've got a previous podcast where you went into detail about transtracheal pressure and how to, you know, the considerations for taking those measurements. So I'll kind of direct people to that if they're going, oh, I want to know more. There is more. Yeah. I was just going to ask and, for and more. Email me. Oh, well, and you can, and I have people email me all the time, like, oh, I, I heard, you know, this presentation, can you give me a little more information? And I'll, I'm happy to set up a Zoom. I'm happy, you know, I've done that for, for, um, individuals or for teams, um, to kind of, you know, for like Brooke and I were talking earlier, we're, the three of us were talking about how we're, um, visual learners, um, sometimes audio only can be challenging. So, um, if, if that's, if that helps, then I'm happy to, um, to go over how, how we do that in peds. Yeah. And we also have an article that you wrote for us. It's published in area digestive health that does some overview of transtracheal pressure and gives photos of the equipment and everything. So I'll yeah. just, yeah. So we've got, a, we've got a little bit of resource out there about it. And then Brooke, what about you for your criteria for starting with your patients? Honestly, it's really similar to what Laura was saying. It's really important to first understand why they got the trach. You know, if, if they got a trach because they had angioedema and their tongue swelled up, so it's blocking off their upper airway, then we have to wait until that's resolved, right? So things like that. Um, upper airway tumors. What else? Yeah, pretty much like edema and tumors are, are the really, really big ones that would be very obvious um, that they may not have adequate patency. Um, you know, sometimes you can't really tell how big their tongue was at baseline and um, how big it is now in these cases of angioedema. So uh, depending on if it's a new care team for that patient that day, everyone might be saying, oh, I think it's better, but I didn't see the patient yesterday. Um, so it might be worth still trying, but then of course, if there's no patency, it's, it's pretty clear why that would be the case. And then you just know to give it time. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty similar. It sounds like. What about your ventilator parameters? Brooke mentioned that they also look at PEEP and FiO2. Do you have any parameters you use there? Yeah. Um, so we, we follow the Passimir, uh, parameters. So I've actually got my, I wish I had my little badge buddy with me right now. Um, and it, that depends on the patient too, because especially with these bariatric patients, we may never get 
their PEEP down to five or 10. You know, sometimes um, bariatric patients need higher PEEP. That's just where, where they're going to have to be. So again, taking in the patient's whole big picture with these numbers, like Laura said, we love numbers in healthcare, but also really embracing the gray and going, okay, well, typically we might like to see um, a PEEP of five or less, or we want to take the PEEP from 10 or 10 down to five or from five down to zero. We want to just take the PEEP away completely so that the passing valve can help to restore that physiologic PEEP. But this is a patient who weighs 600 pounds and um, their PEEP needs are typically 20. So 15 might actually be a perfectly fine place to start. I'm really glad you mentioned that because it's definitely patient specific. Yeah. And, and something that I try to remind um, team members is that the PEEP is delivered by the, by the ventilator. So the PEEP, they're still getting, when the valve is in line, they're still getting that PEEP support. They're still getting mm-hmm. that, that, um, so, so that's, that's been good. And we can, we can show it with manometry. We can prove it with manometry and say, you know, this is at least what's in the trachea. I can't tell you exactly the PEEP that's in the alveoli, but, um, I can tell you that the, the pressure that's in the trachea is, um, consistent with the PEEP. So the only issue that I think perception wise for the patients who are on higher vent settings is just that, um, with that, that with the cuff obviously needing to be deflated um, to put on the valve, that they might possibly um, lose some of the ventilator support with that leak. So it's not it's not that the the valve is a contraindication with higher settings, but more they really want that cuff inflated when they're really sick and on higher settings because they just they don't want that leak. They want all that vent support for these mm-hmm. um, sick lungs. So that's that's more of the um, distinction for S and P's, which is probably pretty similar to you guys, Brooke. Yeah. And that reminds me of a case not too long ago where I don't remember the patient's whole history, but uh, this individual is critically, critically, critically ill, multi-organ failure. And um, the plan had been from the day before to try an inline speaking valve because the patient was trying to communicate with nursing and mouthing words was, was not, not successful at all. And then the patient was frustrated. And anyway, we all probably have a million stories like that. So the patient, uh, again, the plan from the day before was to try inline speaking valve with the patient. And I rolled up with all the stuff and with RT. And then I overheard the intensivist talking to, I think the nurse, they were over, um, I don't know, maybe 10 feet away from me. And I heard something that the intensivist said were, I think they were worried about atelectasis or a pneumothorax. I can't remember, but I went over and I was like, what'd you say? And I said, our plan for today was to do the inline speaking valve, but that requires cuff deflation. Are you so worried about decreasing airway pressures that we should not be doing anything with cuff deflation? And the intensivist said, yes, hold off. We have some sort of um, imaging that we need to do to, to see how the patient's lungs are holding up. Um, so again, keeping in mind, it's not just patient specific, but it can change by the minute. And fortunately, even though we had an order for the inline speaking valve, and that was the plan from the day before, fortunately, I happened to overhear this conversation with 
the intensivist and uh, our plans had to change immediately. And just, I think that's, that's a really important thing for people to keep in mind with trach patients, in addition to just being um, in acute care, especially in general, is go with the flow and roll with the punches because things are going to change minute by minute by minute, whether you're in the room or outside of the room. Well, and I think that's a good point to, to bring up too, is just not to take for granted that people might not understand, like they, they might've put in the order for the, for the speaking valve, not even realizing that you have to deplete the cup. <laughs> and you know, so I just, I never assume that anybody knows that. Like I, I am constantly saying, oh, well, it actually was invented to be used in, in line in the ventilator. And obviously you can use it outside of that, but so many people don't even know that. Mm-hmm. Um, One thing I do want to share kind of in re- in relation to what you were saying, Brooke, for people to look at the research by Soot et al. that was published in 2015, 16, 17, and 18, she actually published multiple studies looking at cardiothoracic patients in the ICU and the valve in line. And she actually was able to show that placing the valve in line, there's a difference between just deflating the cuff and then deflating the cuff and getting the valve in line. Because if you deflate the cuff, you create a leak and the patient has a loss of peep and pressure in their lungs. Mm -hmm. But what she was able to show in her research is that by putting the valve in line, you restored more normal physiologic PEEP and they actually were able to show improved lung recruitment Mm -hmm. and improved ventilation of the alveoli with the valve in line as compared to the cuff up and no valve in line. They actually showed it improved overall lung function and recruitment um, of the alveoli into the breath. So I just wanna share that if people are wanting more information on that, that soot at all has a number of publications um, addressing specifically ICU patients and what happens if you're placing a valve in line on mechanical ventilation. If we get the valves, it's funny because talking to the two of you, the patient criteria is very similar. Now, even if they're an itty bitty baby in the NICU to an adult, the general criteria, because like you said, it's very patient specific and the diagnosis and other things impact your the decision process but the um airway patency can be a little bit different because laura let's let's kind of go back to that transtracheal pressure for just a moment can you kind of highlight what it is because it does give an objective measurement yes which we don't get with any of our other methods so do you mind just kind of touching on that and then brooke what are your thoughts after she does that like your thoughts of how it might work in the adult world like, is it something okay? No pressure. I'm in the hot seat. I'm gonna are in the hot learn seat. something and turn it right back around and have an opinion. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, if a patient is on a ventilator, um, we we put the we kind of um, use some adapters to put to connect a manometer to measure the inside of the trachea, which is like, oh gosh, how do you do that? So you, um, when you put the manometer, um, we use a, a Washington T piece and an oxygen tube to kind of um, get it attached. But we attach the manometer, um, it fits in the circuit um, between the patient and the passing nerve off. So when that happens, you the manometer is picking up the pressure um, the, it, it's picking up a lot of different pressures. So when, when we say transtracheal pressure, the, the, the number that we care about is the end expiratory pressure. So, um, let's 
let's say the let's say the ventilator settings are the PIP is let's say it's 22 and the PEEP is 10. And then the pressure support is um, you know, it's the pressure support plus the PEEP, but let's just say it's 15. Let's just use that as an example and just say that let's say the number is 15. So the um the um vent, what well, well in this in this case, let's say the pressure support is 12. So PEEP of 10, pressure support of 12 and then um, PIP of 22. The um, manometer will read um, PIP, PEEP, pressure support, PEEP um, without the valve. So um, let's say you just put the, sorry, this is confusing. You put the manometer in line. I, I, I put it in before I placed the passing mirror valve. And then um, the manometer will read 22, 10, 12, 10, 22, 10, 12, 10. So it whatever the vent is delivering, the manometer will read. And we're like, okay, everything is, is accurate. The numbers are, are, are good. Then we put the valve in line. And if the airway is patent, it will look exactly the same. That's so, it's such a nice way for the, the therapist to kind of read the, the pattern and read the numbers. If you can start without the valve and then do it with the valve, because with an, a, a patent airway, if the patient isn't pushing or anything like that, then the, the, the pattern will look exactly the same. So, but when we say transtracheal pressure, um, the number that we care about for transtracheal pressure is the end expiratory pressure. So the, um, the, the pressure that's in the trachea at the end of the exhale. So, you know, you get your breath from the vent and then the patient's exhaling, of course, with the valve in line, they're exhaling out of their upper airway. If there is, if they have a patent airway, then there's going to be very low pressure, of course, in the trachea, which is what you want. Mm -hmm. um, but remember, I said earlier, the vent is delivering PEEP. So you the pressure that's within the trachea, if it's consistent with the PEEP, so my manometer will read 10. If the vent is delivering 10 or pretty close to it, you know, 9, 11, whatever, um, then that just shows that the pressure within the trachea is what the vent is delivering. And so that's um, end expiratory pressure and transtracheal pressure to me are synonymous. For that purpose, for the listeners, you were saying you're measuring end expiratory pressure and PEEP is mm -hmm. positive end expiratory pressure. So yeah, I, I think of them as kind of synonymous also. So if you've got a PEEP set on the ventilator, on the manometer, you're going to see that same number at the end of exhalation um, if they have a patent airway, but what mm -hmm. if it's not the same, Laura? What if that number, say your peep from the ventilator is five, but the number you're seeing on the manometer is ten? So that's a good question. So that will that lets me know if it's consistently ten. It lets me know that there's some sort of resistance when they're exhaling, but they're not breath stacking. So. Um, they're able to exhale, but the pressure is showing that um, the higher pressure um, is showing that there's some level of resistance. Is it because the trach tube is too big and the trachea is too small, like for a, a newborn infant, um, or do they have a granuloma? Do they have some upper airway obstruction that we didn't know about? Um, so a, a, another good example is we had this kiddo who was um, about two years old and he was not on a ventilator. And um, kind of looked 
comfortable wearing the speaking valve to the speech therapist that tried it on with him initially, and then without using transtracheal pressure measurements. And then I measured his transtracheal pressure and it, it didn't breath stack. So it didn't, the exhale didn't go 10, 15, 20, 25. It didn't continue to, to increase, but it was consistently about 15 and off the ventilator. That's a pretty high pressure to be in the trachea, um, when you're off the ventilator. And so on the, at the end of your exhale, so I let the ENT know, and they took this boy to the, um, for a DLB and he has grade three subglottic stenosis and they dilated him. And so I said to my ENT, Oh, since you dilated him, can I try it again? And she said, you know, the, that the dilation was not very effective. And then unfortunately at this time, um, you know, he's not a candidate. So he was, he is actually a reconstruct reconstruction candidate. So, um, it's really helpful for us to know, um, to know that and to let the team know, Hey, there, we, there's no known obstruction. Sometimes there is, and we're like, okay, that makes sense. You know, we know they have grade two subloxinosis, or we know they have um, retronathia glossoptosis, you know, something that might be a level of obstruction that would make sense. But if it's not, um, you know, we've, we've let the team know. And then if they do a DLB or a scope or whatever, they're like, they, they can find things like a granuloma and, and remove it. And so um, we can have, um, or, you know, a true content indication, which is obviously something, um, you know, important to know um, because there, because a pediatric patient can't tell you, oh, this is uncomfortable. Can so I ask you a question about that, Laura? Yeah. So your colleague said that the patient looked comfortable wearing the speaking valve. Mm -hmm. What then made you decide to do the transtracheal pressure, like, was there a clinical indicator or was that one of those things where it was becoming a standard of care? Yes, I do it 100% of the time. I, um, I've done hundreds and hundreds of, of PMB trials on and off the ventilator. And I, um, I wouldn't do it without doing transtracheal pressure measurement, but it's, it's easy for me. Um, cause we have all the supplies and I, and it's part of our protocol and, it just gives me so much information. It gives me so much peace of mind. I know that not everybody uses it and they use other tools to, for, to measure airway patency. Um, so whatever works for you, but I, um, I always do it just to, as, as part of my standard of care. So, um, and, and that this patient had been using it at an outside hospital. And so that's why the therapist didn't, um, mm. didn't, didn't measure, um, cause this patient transferred from an outside hospital. So, um, and it, so it's just, just one example of just the importance of it. And I also use it, um, sometimes I got a question yesterday via email about, um, knowing when to cap. Um, and, you know, I've had a couple patients recently who were not on the ventilator and who were, um, who got the trach because of BPD and lung disease and whatever, and then no longer needed the ventilator. And you're, so then you're thinking, well, of course, well, why do they even have the trach anymore? Um, and so, um, I've, I've, um, measured the transtracheal pressure, um, and it off the vent of course. And, um, and if it's super low, I'm like, I think the airways patent, what do you think about capping? And then, um, so it's, it's also a nice indicator for capping readiness, um, mm -hmm. in, in our practice. So Brooke, what do you think on the adult side? <laughs> that was a lot of information for me to absorb as a uh, auditory <laughs> learner. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I guess my main question with it or thought is 
Typically, we use finger occlusion. Mm -hmm. We look at the leak that happens on the ventilator when we deflate the cuff. We listen, you know, do they have a voice? It's a very subjective way of kind of looking at, does an adult have airway patency? Mm -hmm. So really the question for me boils down to, would it be beneficial in the adult world to have an objective measurement of airway patency? The more objective tools, the better. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's, it's kind of like you were saying, Laura, about a difference in clinical practice. Nobody practices the same. You, there are two clinicians in one hospital that practice two different ways. And that's, that's not good, bad, or otherwise. It's just, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's totally different. And different people have different experiences and backgrounds that um, have shaped their, their clinical uh, gut, if you will. Mm -hmm. And there's some really, really subtle signs of poor airway patency that not everybody sees in the same patient. Um, you know, I can think of a couple patients where they're, they can tolerate the valve one day and not the next. And then another clinician mm -hmm. comes in and says, yes, wear it all day. And then the next day, another clinician comes in and goes, oh my gosh, absolutely no speech only, you know, there's some airway patency issues. And that might be from things like fluid overload from dialysis. That's an interesting one that I've noticed a few times in my career, um, just as a, a sidebar that people can fluctuate day to day, but some people might not notice um, really subtle voice changes or that pressed voice that is, it's not like this. Like that's a pretty obvious pressed voice. I don't know if that's gonna come out in a podcast, <laughs> what I just did, but there's a very obvious pressed voice that probably everybody has heard if you've worked with uh, somebody who's not tolerating a speaking valve many times, but there's also a very, very subtle pressed voice that some people might be more attuned to. So, um, you know, differences in practice patterns, I'm fine with it, normal, it happens. But I think the more objective things that we can have where we can say, all right, I thought they were tolerating the speaking valve, they looked fine, but they're, can I just call it TTP? Is that, yes. okay. Uh -huh. So with TTP, they looked like they were tolerating it. They weren't showing any signs of pressed voice or poor tolerance, but they were intubated for three weeks and their TTP is really, really high. So maybe we need an ENT referral um, because I, I think honestly, we probably, if we're not doing fees on patients, we're probably missing some um, airway patency issues. Mm -hmm. um, I shouldn't say missing. We're just not identifying them. Um, as much as maybe we we could, um, so yeah, I think I think the more objective measures for things like that, rather than just relying on that clinician that day, the better. And I think yeah, too, it'd be nice for a respiratory to do that as well. Is that something that respiratory is doing where you are, Laura? Um, I learned to do this with resp. I, I have respiratory with me. Um, until I am, until I am confident that the airway is patent. So I have them with me reading the, the, the pressures. And, and when I was learning how to do it, because we're not RTs, um, or pulmonologists, you know, we, mm -hmm. we, we don't get a lot of training in this. So, um, I, they were so helpful in explaining, okay, so you can hear that. Okay. The vents delivering that breath, that's the PIP. Um, and then that number is the PEEP and this is so definitely, 
um, very, very helpful to have the RT there to help not only just troubleshoot if the vent does anything weird, um, but to help to help explain the numbers for sure. I hate to do it, but that brings us to the end of our time together. I think it was a really good discussion in there where we're, you know, talking a little bit about comparing the adults and peds. And one of my takeaways as I listened is it's not that different. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some things that do, I mean, there are, now we didn't get into, I know there's differences when you talk about like developmental considerations for peds and, and all, but just the general idea of being able to work with a patient with a tracheostomy, being able to do early intervention, using a valve, there's a little timing differences, but, but the differences are pretty minor uh, between what y'all were sharing as far as mm-hmm. what you do with your patients. What do the two of you think? I agree. I, <laughs> I, I agree. And I think it also highlights to me the importance of um, also taking opportunities to learn from my colleagues in the pediatric world, because sometimes it really does feel so, so different. You know, I felt like I left the pediatric world back in grad school when I decided to go into adult medical, you know, and uh, it I think it really drove home the importance of really taking time to, to learn from colleagues who are working in other, um, other populations. Yeah. Uh, and I do what, something I want to add too is, um, I think Brooke, you and I are fortunate that we do have the support of our physicians and our respiratory therapists to do, um, to place the valve on these medically complex um, patients and to place it in line in the ventilator. But that is most definitely not the case, um, across the country. And so I've gotten a lot of feedback, um, that, you know, teams are, are comfortable placing it off the ventilator, but just this perception that, um, cuff deflation, oh my gosh, the patient's going to decide when you deflate the cuff. Um, and just all this, these fear there's, so a lot of people are not, um, are not in settings that, that have that support. So I've been trying to, to do what I can to help and to, um, that's why I write so much about it because I'm just trying to to spread the word that you know. Um, and and another thing that I of, often say is if they say, "Oh, well, they're going to decide if you deflate the cuff," and you're like, "We we know that that's not the case, but okay, um, okay, well, 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 let's see, let's see, or or this is going to mm-hmm. happen, or this is going to happen. Well, let's try it and see. You know, I'm going to do it with an RT there. We're in the ICU. If something happened where we can reinflate the cuff, we can take the valve off. You know, and and that. We've never had a had a had a bad event, but if there's ever this this fear that oh there's CO two is going to rise, whatever, then measure it. Yeah, yeah, and to that point, Laura, too. I've worked in places where that we didn't have speech, didn't have that great relationship. They they had not had trust established with the physicians, the nurses, the respiratory therapists. So I just want to encourage people that it is possible it is not always easy and it is usually not fast but it is possible to be collegial to develop these collaborative relationships to have a successful program when you're starting from nothing it is possible you have to be stubborn like me perhaps but it is possible and i you know reach out to your experts read your articles, take your CEUs, get a mentor, do whatever you need to support yourself. 
in this process, but I just, I want people to understand that, yeah, we acknowledge that not everyone has the same resources as far as finances or people or knowledge, but um, that with, with a little bit of <laughs> stubbornness and uh, finding some champions on your team, um, maybe you can do it. It's, it's worth trying. I just don't want to, to hear people throwing their hands up and, and giving up completely um, just because things are different at their facility. And I do want to end on one note that kind of clarifies something I said earlier, because I don't want people to leave with the thought that I'm saying the adult and pediatric worlds are the same. And if you work in one, you can work in the other. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying there are similarities and there's some overlap. And like you said, Brooke, we can learn from each other and use that information. And, the, but there, there are a lot of similarities that we can, mm -hmm. you know, take away from and, um, we should read the research in both areas because we will learn from that research and we, you know, we can apply some of that knowledge and information that we learn from either patient population. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I'm definitely not feeling competent to go and work in a NICU or PICU or <laughs> anything. Even though I learned something new today, I am I'm definitely not competent. So I'm, I'm with you. There are similarities, but yeah. Uh, be, be, be cautious, be yep. conscientious. Yep. Well, thank you both so much for joining me. I think uh, we could talk as, you know, there was a can of worms you almost opened earlier, Brooke. There's all <laughs> kinds of things that we could uh, chat about, but I think this was a really nice start to kind of compare some small areas of the pediatric and adult worlds. And I really appreciate both of you spending time with me to talk today. Thank you for listening to this episode of CAM. We are happy to offer continuing education credit through ASHA for this podcast. To receive credit, please go to www.passymure.com podcast and click on the continuing education link under this episode. Then you will either create an account or log into your existing education portal account. Complete the quiz and course evaluation for your podcast episode. Your certificate will be available for download once completed.